Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōnai e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora and welcome back to episode 3 of Hair and Loathing with me, Charlotte Cook. A podcast where I talk about bodies and the hairy bits of it. I had a really bad monobrow. My hands get quite hairy. The old gorilla hands. My feet, my toes. Beards around my nipples. My stomach. Ear hair and nose hair. I have this clear memory of the family calling me mustachios. And it was my little, like, five o'clock shadow coming through on my toes. Once again, this might be a confronting listen for some of you. In this episode, I talk about hormones treatments and the journey for trans women. I started growing out my body hair about five weeks ago when I began researching and interviewing, so everything is getting pretty furry, apart from that one place I'm sure you all remember. People always say, it's there for a reason, as some kind of way to make me feel better. But honestly, what have my hairy toes ever done for me? What's kind of amazing is that this is the first time since I was, say, 13 that my body hair has been left unmaintained. We know that most bodies have hair, it comes in varying degrees, but for the most part it's normal, even if we're told it isn't. So how do we rule out if it's a red flag for something more serious like a health condition? I'm a endocrinologist, which means I'm a physician who's a hormone specialist, and particularly I'm a reproductive endocrinologist. What does that have to do with body hair? <laughs> a lot, actually. This is Dr Stella Milsom. I met her in Auckland for a coffee. Now, it's all a bit complex, and we are strapped for time, so she's going to give us a taster into the medical side of hairiness. Being a reproductive endocrinologist means you're particularly interested in the function of the ovaries and the adrenal glands and in conditions that might affect the menstrual cycle but might also affect levels of hormones in the body, particularly the balance of female and male hormones. And of course, in terms of body hair, sometimes body hair is caused by an imbalance or a disproportion of various types of hormones. What's considered a normal amount of hair tends to depend on your family history and ethnicity. But unfortunately, there's no real test to determine how much you should have. Instead, there's a Fairman-Galway scale, which scores the face, chest, abdomen, legs and back. Those sites are scored between zero and four, and with that we get, and of course it is subjective, but we get a score. So if you are Caucasian, for instance, it would be reasonably normal to have a score up to seven. So in that setting we're scoring what we call male type or more androgen-dependent hair. 
Androgen is a male-type hormone, partly responsible for hair growth in women. So up to seven would be within the normal range, and really just in simple terms, it means that most women, particularly Caucasian women, um, if we're thinking about different ethnicities, are going to have some hair. Interestingly, the scoring system doesn't necessarily include places that might worry women, like uh, hair on the sideboard area. Um, hair around the nipples, hair on the arms, even even hair on the fingers or toes. What is hair on the body for? Like it grows there, so on some level it must have a purpose, right? In the setting of the androgen-dependent areas, it is hard to see quite what that purpose is. We know that we're born with many, many hair follicles, and most of those are actually not active. So let's say we had up to a million hair follicles that could grow some of this darker or more androgen or more male-type hair. At any one stage, only a few thousand are actually in action. But what concerns people is different. Some people with modest body hair are really troubled by it. There is a great deal of of variation in what upsets people, but it can be to the point, I've got patients who will actually dress incredibly differently because they're concerned about hair in a particular place. So they may have a lovely figure, be a very attractive young woman and not wear a bikini because they don't feel they can rid themselves of enough either the snail trail on their abdomen or their thigh hair. They may not even get into a bathing suit. I've even got women who stay at home who will not venture out, just like we are, having a coffee outside because they're ashamed of hair on their arms, facial hair, women who will only wear long sleeves or won't wear shorts because they don't feel that they can manage their body hair. Stella says if someone presents to her distressed about their body hair, she looks to see if there's a reason for the hair. Are there other things going on that might suggest a hormonal condition? So do, should we be investigating um, even just measuring a serum testosterone? But should we actually be looking for polycystic ovary syndrome, which would be the most common? Should we be checking thyroid function? Should we be thinking about adrenal function? Um, has there been a history of weight loss? We need to decide if that hair really is male-dependent hair or if it's the other types of hair we talked about. So let's say it is moderately significant, and yes, it's causing distress so we do a workup to see why that might be happening because I think for many of my patients the why is important why them why not their friend but the next thing to decide is do we want to actually manage it in a way that involves prescription medications we'll come back to Stella and the medical ways to mitigate hairiness but you will have heard her mention polycystic ovarian syndrome Hello, Andrea speaking. Kia ora, it's Charlotte calling. Hey Charlotte, how are you going? This is Andrea. She was diagnosed with PCOS in 2018. I knew something was wrong because I hadn't had my period for three months. So I went to the doctor and told her about my symptoms and she said, that sounds like polycystic ovaries. And I was like, what the heck is that? You know, I'd never heard about it before. The condition affects about 10% of women in New Zealand, caused by an increased level of testosterone and insulin. The symptoms range from mild to severe and can include irregular or heavy periods, acne, excess facial or body hair, scalp hair loss and weight gain. So I have excessive hair on my arms, 
my stomach, my feet, my toes, like moustache here. I've got a monobrow as well. I've just always been quite a hairy person since I was younger. So when I was diagnosed with PCOS, it finally, you know, made sense why I've been such a hairy person. Did that diagnosis help you? Like, did the understanding of, oh, I, there is something going on here, I'm not just hairy, did that play into your mind? Yeah, I guess because, like, growing up, especially when you're a teenager, it's tough when you're comparing yourself to everyone and you feel insecure. And so I always hated how hairy I was and I tried shaving my arms and, you know, always keeping up with getting rid of the hair just to try and be normal like everyone else and I guess just being diagnosed with PCOS just made me feel like oh you know this happens to many women and it's not just me and hair is also normal it's not you know something to be ashamed about. She's now taking a hormone medication which slows down the growth and makes her hair less thick but the psychological effects have been heavy. It definitely made me feel like I wasn't I wasn't feminine enough. It just really played into how self-conscious I was about wearing shorts, wearing jandals if I hadn't shaved my feet or just going out without having waxed my upper lip. I feel like the worst stage for me was when I started shaving my arms. And, like, I don't understand why I would have done that. Obviously, I just felt very insecure, but... Right now, I just look at my arms and they just look like arms. Like, there's no problem with having dark hair at all. <laughs> she was also self-conscious when her armpit started sprouting. Then I started shaving it all the time and even playing netball at high school. And I would, even if I had shaved, I'd feel embarrassed about, you know, the dark stubble compared to all the other girls who had these beautiful, clean-shaven underarms. Oh, it's like that you blink and you've got stubble. Yeah, it's like, but I just shaved. <laughs> I'd always feel really self-conscious at netball. And I, that's just weird, you know. You're trying to, you're supposed to be focusing on the sport itself, not on what everyone's underarms look like. Andrea removes some of her body hair and hides other parts of herself. Someone who helps people whip off their hairy bits is Rachel. Waxing is just so satisfying to do. Like hairy to completely smooth, I just love it. And also I just hate my own body hair. So the fact that I can give that gift to other people is just amazing. She's the waxing trainer from Off and On, the removal specialist who took care of my pubes. I can honestly barely remember what my hair looks like because I've had laser. So I used to like do my own waxing, which was tricky but not impossible. Um, but yeah, after working here, we had that laser department, obviously, so got pretty much everything lasered. Laser is the newest and possibly most popular form of hair removal. It's pricey, but permanent. Unless you're me, and it doesn't work at all. But Rachel assures me it would work if done properly. There's always other ways you can tackle the fuzz if that's your thing. Plucking, shaving, waxing, threading. Yes, hair is removed with an actual thread. And electrolysis, where the follicle is essentially electrocuted. But there's a new thing on the market for those of us with a furry face. Another thing we do, if you've heard of it, is the dermaplaning. 
Hair on the face, honestly, is tough to wax because if it's not super coarse and dark, right, it's, it's the peach fuzz, fluffy, you know, downy hair. Um, and that is, um, yeah, that's hair that we were like, yeah, this is, this is not great. We want to get rid of that as well. So we brought in dermaplaning. So that's using a disposable blade to get the closest sort of shave, essentially, of those hairs. And because they're so fine and soft, they don't actually grow very fast. So they're very slow to grow back after because we get a super, super close shave with the blade. Sounds terrifying. It's not at all. It's the one treatment that we do it off and on that is not painful. <laughs> <laughs> because any other treatment that we do, we are inflicting hopefully the smallest amount of pain possible, but we are ripping your hairs out. Whereas the blade just removes it from the surface. So it's actually the one treatment that people get done where they could almost fall asleep. That's the like soft, yeah, fuzzy bit. Yeah. That's kind of nice to touch. <laughs> It's even nicer when it's not there though. <laughs> Honestly, you have no idea how good your makeup goes on afterwards and all your moisturizers and your serums just get in your skin better. Oh, it's beautiful. It's so nice. To be honest, my peach fuzz is the least of my concerns, though I do take to my moustache with a razor. I can hear a collective gasp from the lot of you. What? You shave your face? But doesn't it come back thicker? I thought we best go back to the doctor on this one. A lot of old wives' tales about this, so let's just let's yeah, just let's get through them. Let's get through the old wives' tales. Removing hair, whichever method you use, is not going to make the hair grow faster. It's not going to make it thicker. It's not going to make it darker. Uh, so perfectly reasonable to remove hair. And how you remove hair might depend on what you like, what your budget is, um, whether you think it irritates your skin. What um, your pain threshold is. What your pain, yes, absolutely. <laughs> the one the one time I had waxing, <laughs> let's be quite frank, I brought tears to my eyes and I just couldn't believe that all my patients nobly went through this on a very regular basis. Though for some women, their journey is a little different. For Caitlin, her lack of hair was initially a problem. So, obviously, I didn't grow up as a girl because I'm trans, but I didn't have really any body hair growing up. I mean, I got pubic hair and armpit hair, but it was a low amount. So, because I was still struggling with my gender identity and stuff, I wanted to masculinise so that I could fit in. Even though I wanted to be a girl, I didn't think that was possible. So, I wanted to grow facial hair and I wanted to grow body hair but it just wasn't happening so I got teased a lot for being hairless and I was hairless all through my 20s as well until I transitioned. That was 14 years ago. My relationship with body hair is I don't really have much <laughs> which is probably a little bit confronting for some people to know about a trans woman that I was having this discussion at work before I got here saying I'm going to do this podcast thing and they're like, oh, it's about my body hair and then I was like, I showed them my legs and I'm like, I don't shave my legs and that's my leg hair. <laughs> oh my goodness. And that's it up there. That's it's all. like there's, there's like nothing. <laughs> so yeah, so that's my natural body hair. Caitlin's lucky. Now she has a good relationship with her body hair or lack of. Lots of... Trans women especially have a really fraught relationship, much like yours, probably worse because they're dealing with things like chest hair and facial hair and neck hair and back hair and stuff. And it's signalling to other people that you're male and so you hate it. It's awful. <laughs> it makes you feel like you're in an alien's body. Within your community, 
what are some of the like emotional effects that maybe having excess body hair could do? Uh, I mean, it wrecks some trans girls on some days of the week. Like, maybe you've had a really shit day in general and people have been, like, not good towards you, especially for trans women who don't pass well. Uh, and then you go home and you want to have a shower, but you're going to see your body and you're going to see your body here. And that can be a bit salt-destroying for some people. Um, the, the term we use for that is dysphoria. Um, gender dysphoria and yeah being triggered by your own body is something that really sucks and it can definitely happen with body hair and what can you do about it other than like close your eyes and wash yourself and try not to see it all <laughs> and so you know consequently some people end up not having good hygiene because the consequences of Having good hygiene means that you're going to make yourself feel worse about yourself, but not looking after yourself also makes you feel worse about yourself, so it's catch-22. What body hair she did have either lessened or went away completely when she started anti-androgens, or anti-testosterone medication. But it can be a mission. For us, it's like, no one's going to accept me as a woman if I don't remove all my body hair, because that's what women do and I should be doing everything that women do and more to be accepted as a woman because I wasn't born a woman. But it's a different story for others. Hi, I'm Tris Eager. One of those people who's had a tougher job of navigating body hair is Tris. She's been taking male-to-female hormone replacement therapy for two years. Before I started that, I had relatively thick hair on my legs, little beards around my nipples, a tiny spattering of hair on the middle of my chest and essentially a natural goatee. Since taking hormone replacement therapy, my leg hair has thinned out a lot, and I shave my little snail's trail on my lower belly. I don't have to shave my chest anymore, I just had a little spattering, which thinned out from hormone therapy, and which I had electrolysis to remove, and I also had electrolysis to remove the little ring of hair that I call my nipple beards around my nipples and I've been having laser facial hair removal for two years on my face and neck. Before I started laser facial hair removal, I was plucking it all. So I was plucking my entire facial hair, which took about an hour a day, and that meant that I didn't have shadow, because that's, for me personally, like facial hair shadow is one of the main things that gives me gender dysphoria, that feeling that like I'm not I'm not, my body doesn't match my gender identity. One of the interesting things I've discovered from transitioning, but which I think every woman just knows, is that it's expensive being a woman. When I say it's expensive, it's to maintain the same level of professionalism as a man it's a lot more expensive. So you could choose to be a hippie and never shave your legs and never wear makeup, but if you want to maintain the same level of professionalism as a male colleague, the standards that you're expected to meet are much more expensive to meet. And then a lot of men just presume women don't have to deal with their facial hair, except obviously trans women, but a lot of women um, I'm not a trans woman and I have to shave my face. Yeah, so and that, so that's added cost on top of like the other things that are more widely known about, like legs and things. So all of that adds up, and then it takes time as well. 
For trans women like Tris, it's about finding that feminine benchmark. Feminizing myself is quite validating. To a certain extent, I just want to to shave my hair because that is the accepted beauty standard for women. It's not that cis women don't have leg hair. It's not like having leg hair makes me not a woman, but it makes me the ideal beauty standard. Talking to other trans women online, seeing a lot of women make the comments that, oh, I'm not feminine enough, I'm not attractive enough, therefore I'm not a real woman. And at first I was like, I thought it's really sad that, that trans women feel that way. And then I sort of thought about it, I was like, well, I know a lot of cis women, and most of them actually feel that same way too. Like, most women feel that they don't live up to the ideal beauty standard. And so whenever I hear a trans woman say, I'm not feminine enough, therefore I'm not a real woman, what I want to respond now is actually that feeling kind of proves that you are a woman because that is part of being a woman in the society that we live in is feeling not feminine enough. But back to Caitlin, who says even once trans women get the hair under control, sometimes there's a second wave. After 30, as you sort of approach 40, and you notice that's when men tend to get a bit more rugged looking and they get more (laughs) hair in places where they never had hair and so older trans women will have been through that and they will have to deal with the repercussions of that like lots and lots of nose hair, lots and lots of ear hair, stuff that we've never thought about before uh, and that can be really distressing. By this point there isn't much about hair and its removal that surprises me but this one really got me. For trans women's surgery, especially in the United States, they reuse most of the skin of your genitals, including the stuff that has hair on it. The problem is, is they're using that skin and tissue to create your vagina, so it needs to be hairless. So you need to have about three or four clearing sessions of electrolysis. So someone is sitting there, a technician, zapping your genitals and removing all the hairs from them until it's all gone and then they can give you surgery. Ouch! Yeah, fortunately there are surgeons who don't require the hair removal. Do you end up with like a hairy vagina in places that it shouldn't be hairy if you haven't undergone the hair removal thing? The short answer to that is yes, there is one of the complications of those surgeries, that specific surgery, the inversion surgery, is you can end up with hairs inside your vagina. And they can get ingrown and stuff and it can be nasty. Fortunately it's not very common, but it can happen. So all the cis ladies out there, just be thankful you can't get ingrown hairs in your vag. But the uh, Thai surgeons, like the surgeon I went to, basically what they do is when they remove the tissue, they have someone sitting there and they scrape all the follicles out. When I was younger, I had all of the tests done to check if my testosterone levels were abnormal and to rule out polycystic ovaries. I didn't want anything to be wrong with me, but I badly wanted a reason for all my body hair. I wanted a quick fix and something to blame. They found nothing. I'm just pale and hairy. I've for so long claimed that label. Hairy is something to make me feel better. Realistically, it's probably just normal, but when you compare yourself to the hairless standard, it's easy to feel like a hibernating bear. But as Dr Stella Milsom says, what distresses people varies, and there are a few medical ways to navigate the hair. The first simplest option, in a way, is a 
is a cream that people won't know about. It's called Vanika cream, V-A-N-I-Q-A. This inhibits the, an enzyme in the hair follicle that grows the hair. And you put the cream on, and usually people use it on their face. And you have to put it on every day, but it's very effective. The problem is it's not funded, but you can order it from Green Lane Hospital Pharmacy for a fee, several hundred dollars. Then we move on to prescription medications, which act by, they do two things. They either block the production of those male hormones, or they stop the male hormones that you've got circulating in your body binding to one of these inactive hair follicles and telling it to grow hair. So they're called anti-androgens, anti-male hormone therapy. So the combined birth control pill, and there are some in that class that are probably going to be a bit more effective. They are the, the ones called currently in New Zealand called Jeanette, Yaz and Yasmin. But any combined birth control pill, the second generations will also be very effective. I think the key thing is the time of action. Right this minute, Charlotte, you and I have hair follicles programmed to start. So they are programmed and it doesn't matter what we take now when we go home or go to work, they will grow for the next five or six months. So any treatment that I institute now is going to take five or six months to start to see any effect. So someone has to, has to understand that. And for instance, one could opt to start for one of these anti-androgens and use the Vanica cream initially, to, to, it's particularly in someone who's very distressed by the time they come to see you. Now, along with the birth control pill, we've got other options. I don't want to get into the nitty-gritty of medications, because they're all very specific for each person, depending on the stage of life they're at. If you'd like to know more, find a good GP who can discuss your options with you, or send you to an endocrinologist. Wherever you sit on the scale of distressed or hairy, know that how you feel is normal. It's okay to ask for help, it's okay to remove it, it's okay to keep it, but just know that you aren't alone. All these women have shared their stories to prove that, to break down the taboo and remind you that all bodies are beautiful. Next time on Hair and Loathing, I talk to women that are bound by religion to remove hair, some that are from notoriously hairy nations, and how colonisation has impacted body image. This is a Tahi podcast, which you can find on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you usually get them. Alternatively, head to the RNZ podcast and series page. Hair and Loathing is made by me, Charlotte Cook. The executive producer is Sonia Yee, and William Saunders is the sound engineer. Ka kite.